0: We are in Mark chapter 2 today. Uh, From the very beginning of God giving his law, he'd given lots of different commands. He'd given commands about moral behavior, like how to treat your neighbor, uh, how to stay committed to your spouse, uh, how not to lie, how not to steal. But one big command that it seems like gets overlooked pretty regularly is the command to rest, or the command to observe the Sabbath day. And this is a command that we almost never talk about. This is something that we we don't mention a whole lot or, or take very seriously. But in the Scriptures, we see that God did take it seriously. Uh, this command actually made the top ten. If you, if you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, um, God is giving the Ten Commandments. In the fourth commandment, he says, Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, Or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So when God's making these Ten Commandments, he sees fit to include in that list, take a day off. Now that's not something we necessarily would have put in this list. We would have put the day off in a separate list, we wouldn't have put it with, don't murder. We would have put it with buckle your seatbelt and wait 20 minutes after eating before you swim. It's not that important of a command for us, but apparently it was a big deal to God. And then when God was uh, in the nation of Israel, uh, the civil law was set up by God, and so penalties for crimes were set up by God, which is not the way that it is today. But in Exodus 31:14, he said this. He says, you shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. So breaking the Sabbath, not resting on the Sabbath day, was a capital offense. I mean, we would expect the equivalent of a parking ticket, but God said you get the chair. So he's he's serious about this thing. Um, So so why is this such a big deal? And I think we'll see why it's such a big deal when we look to Jesus. So in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, it says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain field, and they were hungry. And so because they were hungry, his disciples are plucking these heads of grain, and they're eating them. Um, Now, this isn't all out working. Uh, This is not harvesting. It's basically the equivalent of opening up the fridge and taking a snack out of it. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had taken the law about the Sabbath, about taking that day off, and they had wrapped it in a bunch of their own rules. They said, God takes this Sabbath thing really seriously, and so we need to make sure we don't get anywhere near breaking that law. And so they put all kinds of laws on top of it. And, and they had 39 different laws that they would demand that people follow about the Sabbath that God hadn't even commanded. Uh, but what they were hoping is that people would take their rules as seriously as they took the Bible. By the way, this is one of the marks of of dead religion. In dead religion, you hear the commands from God, and you say, I've got to keep these commands to keep God happy with me, so it's really important that I keep these commands, so now I'm going to wrap those commands and a bunch of other commands that I make up, and I'm going to bind those new commands on everybody else. I'm going to judge everybody else based on whether they're following my rules, and the whole thing ends up being about my rules more than it is about God's. They thought that what they were doing was a good thing. They thought that they were protecting people from breaking the law by adding all these extra rules, but in reality, they were insulting God as the lawgiver. I mean, this would be the equivalent of you go to an art museum, and you bring your paintbrush, and and you go up to the paintings, and you say, that's just not right. that smirk on Mona Lisa, it just, it just doesn't seem complete. And so you fix it, and you say that there should be a bigger smile there. What were you thinking, Da Vinci? I mean, i got to fix this thing. That doesn't honor the artist. That makes you look like you're, you think you're smarter and better and more artistic than the artist. And so, so these Pharisees, instead of honoring God and obeying his commands, they added all of their other commands to it and, and thought this is the real law, this is the important stuff. Now, all of this was convenient because they were looking for a way of accusing Jesus of being a bad guy. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus healed a leper, and right after he healed him, he said, now, don't go and tell anybody about this, because Jesus knew that as soon as he went and told everybody about it, Jesus would become a celebrity, there would be crowds around him, he wouldn't be able to get to people who needed him the most, and now Jesus is a celebrity. That leper broke that command, went out and told everybody, the, the crowds are coming to Jesus, And the religious authorities are looking at Jesus as the celebrity, saying, "We've got to find a way for him to fall." And we we naturally like doing this with celebrities. Uh, We we like to put celebrities on pedestals, and then, if we're honest, because we're warped, we like to see them fall too. And this is why we have the National Enquirer, and this is why we have a TV show like Entertainment Tonight, because we want to watch celebrities fall. We want to see them make shipwreck of their lives so that we can feel better about ourselves. And it's almost like this sick hobby that we like to lift up a celebrity and then laugh when they collapse. That's nothing new. That was going on here. And these Pharisees especially were motivated to see Jesus fall because he was stealing their influence. He was stealing their attention. They were the religious leaders. They were the guys who knew the Bible. And here comes Jesus and the crowds are going to him. So they want to see him knocked down. So they start watching him. They start observing closely, and everywhere you turn, it seems like there are Pharisees there watching Jesus, and then they say, look, here are the disciples. They're plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath day. That is breaking our law. We had a rule that you're not supposed to do that, and this is just a slippery slope that they're on. Pretty soon, they're going to be firing up the combine and working an entire day, harvest this whole field, breaking the Sabbath. They're breaking our law. They must not care about the Word of God. So at this point, they're thinking, we got them excellent. This is the material they're going to use in their smear campaign against Jesus that's about to start right at this point. And by the way, these Pharisees, we're going to see them all throughout the rest of this book of Mark, just sort of lurking around. They're just like these creepy characters who everywhere you look, they're there, they're lurking, they're observing, they're ready to criticize. And you you picture this scene where the disciples are walking through the grain fields, you know, stalks of grain as high as their heads. They're enjoying their day off, they're getting rejuvenated like they were supposed to, they're being refreshed, they're eating, they're laughing, probably chucking some of the grain at each other, and then they come around the corner, and there's four Pharisees just standing there. (laughs) And it seems like all throughout this book, everywhere you go, it's just, ah, they're they're there again. And they just lurk. They're not actually part of the work of God, they're not doing the work of God, they're just there to to lurk and observe and criticize and steal joy. That's another Mark... Of dead religion is that, that dead religion doesn't do the work of God it just sort of lurks around it and criticizes it so these guys do this and they do it all throughout the life of Jesus now culminating in his death because they want to lurk they want to destroy so they're digging for dirt and they, they see Jesus disciples eating these this uh, stalks of grain on the Sabbath and they say why are you doing this and so Jesus who's always wise replies to him in verse 25 it says and he said to them have you never read what David did When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So Jesus' response here is, have you ever read this passage? And this is a sarcastic thing for him to be saying to the Pharisees. I mean, these Pharisees were the guys who had devoted themselves to knowing the Bible they probably had a lot of this passage memorized. Not only that, but they had these boxes that were strapped to their foreheads and wrists called phylacteries, and in those boxes there were these tiny little scrolls with Bible verses written on them. So if anybody in town knew the Bible, if anybody had read that passage, if there was anybody who was a Bible guy, it was the Pharisees. And Jesus says to them, hey, have you ever read the Bible? Because there's this one passage right around the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he's using almost the equivalence of a verse reference there, because uh, there was actually a different priest at this time. He says, like, around there in this section, there's this place where we see David and his men going into the temple and eating this bread that they weren't supposed to eat. And Jesus kind of hits them with a little bit of sarcasm, with a little bit of a bite here. And this is something that we see all throughout the life of Jesus. He is incredibly merciful and kind with the most broken sinners. I mean, Jesus is the one there saying, no, don't stone that woman who's caught in adultery. He's the one who's restoring lepers, healing broken. Uh, when, When people who are doubting come to him and they have genuine doubts and they say stuff to him like, Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. He's there to restore them and love them. He's quick to respond to them. But the people who are religious and think they have it all together and are there to criticize Jesus, he reserves some of his most biting words some of his most sarcastic words, he hits them the hardest. Now, sometimes as churches, we do the opposite. You know, we're pretty good at pointing out the sins that are out there. You know, we're good at being hard on sexual sinners. We're, we're good at being hard on alcoholics. But then we never call religious people who think they have it all together but aren't trusting Jesus, we never call them out on that. We give them a pass on their religious sins, but then we attack the people who are, are, are struggling with other sins, the, the ones that are really dark, the ones that the Christians just don't like. But Jesus didn't do that. I mean, Jesus wasn't calling these wild sinners to repent and become religious. He was calling wild sinners to turn from their sin and trust Jesus. And he was calling religious sinners to turn from their substitutes for Jesus and trust in Jesus. He was calling everybody to repent. He, he doesn't call us to become religious. He calls us to a third way altogether, where the gospel of Christ is not religion, it's not irreligion, it's a relationship with Jesus, so to the most religious people, he's saying, you need to repent and have a relationship with me. To the most sinful people, he's saying, you need to repent and have a relationship with me. He doesn't give people a free pass with their religious sins. In fact, he's harder on them because they need to see that they don't have it all together. And we see that all throughout the life of Christ. So, so Jesus calls them to turn from their religious substitutes. He says to them, uh, have you read the Bible? And then he says, there, there was this passage where David and his men, they went into the high priest looking for food. And the priest didn't have any food. There, there was nothing that he could feed them, but he did have the bread of the presence, which was this bread that they were allowed to kind of keep around, fresh-baked, and then the priests were supposed to eat it. Uh, but regular people, like David and his men, they weren't supposed to eat that. That bread was there to, to represent something. In fact, all of the ceremonial laws that we see all throughout the Old Testament, they're all there to represent Jesus. You know, the fact that there was always fresh-baked bread in the temple— was just a reminder that there was one who was coming, Jesus, who would later call himself the bread of life. That he's the one who nourishes and feeds his people. That his body would be like bread that was broken for us to feed us. And so the the presence of that bread in the temple was supposed to be this pointer to Jesus and, and who he is for us, how he nourishes us, how he takes care of us. That was supposed to show people, before Christ was walking on the earth, a little bit what Jesus would be like. So now if David and his men come in, and they say, hey, we are hungry, we're starving. And they say, we've got this bread, but we can't give it to you. You're just going to have to starve. Well, that doesn't look like Jesus anymore. Because Jesus is one who nourishes and cares for us. And so, so that bread would no longer be fulfilling its purpose, would no longer be fulfilling its symbolism. So they were able to take that ceremonial law and set it aside in order to nourish people. Because they didn't want to wreck that picture of Jesus or because God didn't want that picture wrecked. And so Jesus says, that's the way things worked back then. And that's the kind of category he put the Sabbath law in. That the Sabbath was supposed to be a picture of something big. It was supposed to be a picture of the rest we have in Jesus. That the way we come to Jesus isn't by doing good things, it's just by resting in him. And if they were to say, you have to to obey all these rules on the Sabbath, follow all these laws, do all this work, if that's what they were to say then that doesn't paint a very good picture of who Jesus is. And so he says we should be able to take those laws and set those aside in the same way if they're not fulfilling fulfilling their picture. So verse 27, this is what he says. It says, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now what he does here is he doesn't strip away that original command to work six days and then rest one. He says two things that will define what the Sabbath rhythms in our life should look like. And the first thing he says was that the Sabbath was made for man. I mean, imagine that you were a farmer in Israel. And, and so you worked long hours out in the hot sun. I'm sure it was exhausting work. You started at sunup and then you worked till sundown. As a farmer, there's all more, always more work to do. It never feels like it's done. You, you never feel like everything is arranged and I can rest now. And God comes to you and says, here's what I want you to do. Work six days, but then rest one. One out of every seven, I want you to take that day off and rest and just trust that I'm going to provide for you. If you're a farmer and you hear that, you say, that sounds awesome. That sounds so rejuvenating. That sounds exactly like what I need. That sounds like a huge relief. But the way that the Pharisees interpreted that law and then wrapped it in their own rules made it a burden. They made it exhausting. the people heard God's law and they thought God's law is a blessing, but they heard the Pharisees' law and they thought, this Sabbath thing sounds like an awful lot of work. I I don't know how I could keep all these commands. I mean, some of the rules that they had added to the Sabbath were almost funny, where they said you couldn't drag a stick along the ground on the Sabbath because that's practically harvesting. I mean, you might as well be working out in the field if you're going to drag a stick. Girls couldn't wear ribbons in their hair on the Sabbath because that's like carrying a burden around. You might as well be stacking hay if you're going to do that. And so, so th- those were their laws. And so for them, the, the Sabbath was a day to be bored and ugly and to, to do that to honor God. And that wasn't at all what was intended. There was something that was supposed to be rejuvenating and refreshing and life-giving about this day, but they had added all these rules and wrecked it. So, so you would hear all these rules that the Pharisees added, and you would say, man, this Sabbath thing is stressing me out. I just, man, I work hard six days, and then i got to work even harder on the seventh day to be able to keep all these rules. They totally missed what the whole day was about. It was supposed to be made for man, to rejuvenate man, to be refreshing, and they made it all about keeping rules. So Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, and then the second thing he says is that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying this day is actually all about me. This is my day which is another claim to be God, but it's also another reminder that, that the rest that we're supposed to be experiencing on that seventh day of the week is a pointer to how we rest in Jesus. In fact, when the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, it says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, it says, "...so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his." So when we rest on the seventh day, that's supposed to paint a picture of the rest that we have when we come to God, of the way that we come to God, not through working, not through following rules, but just resting and trusting in him. That's what what the gospel says. The gospel says we don't do good things to please God, and then he accepts us. It says that God did all of the work for us. He came, he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. And if we just trust, we just rest in Jesus and don't try to contribute any of our own works to that at all, then we're saved, we're forgiven, we're made new. This is Jesus' day. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and it's supposed to paint a picture of what it's like to be in relationship with Christ. Listen to Matthew 11, verse 28. It says, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, Jesus says that when we come to Him, we find our ultimate rest. I mean, think of all the rest that Jesus gives us. He gives us rest from the demands of religion. You know, if you're new here and you thought you were just going to come in and see what what this Christian religion is, I want you to know this really, we hope, is very different than a religion. You know, religion makes all these demands and says, do all these things, don't do all these things, and then you'll be righteous, then you'll be accepted by God. But then you, you try to do those things, and it never feels like enough. You never feel like your conscience is clean, you never feel like you measure up, and if you're really good at deceiving yourself and you convince yourself that you are pretty good, then you start to become arrogant. And so religion just spoils us in all kinds of ways. But by coming and dying for us on the cross and paving the way for us to go to God, Jesus gave us rest from the demands of religion. I don't do a bunch of good things to keep God, uh, to stay on God's good side. I just trust in Jesus. I trust in what he did for me on the cross. And then I do good things out of delight, not out of this duty feeling like I could never measure up. Jesus also gives us rest from our ultimate worries. We go to work and we work real hard and we think, man, if I don't measure up, then I could lose my job and then I I won't be able to pay the mortgage and then I could lose the house. And that's all a legitimate train of thought. But the question that Christians can ask is, well, then what? What happens if you lose the house? And our answer is that Jesus will still be enough for us. We'll still have Jesus. We we still have what's ultimate. We still have our home with our God. We still have a future with him in eternity. And so we can't lose what's ultimate to us. So that whole drive inside of us to work, 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 just so I can maybe survive and keep the ultimate thing, all gets dissipated if we really believe in Jesus because the ultimate thing was already purchased for us. It's already ours, and we can't lose it. We can't lose it at all. But here were these guys, these Pharisees. They knew God's law well, and they missed the whole point. They thought the Sabbath was the way you followed rules to make yourself good, to keep God happy with you, but the day was never designed for that. These people, they they knew the Bible, but they missed Jesus. They missed the big picture, and so they just got twisted by their religion. And you see it really clearly in this next passage. Mark 3, verse 1, it says, Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. We're not sure exactly what a withered hand is, but it, this is a guy who doesn't have the use of one of his hands. Um, Luke says it was his right hand. So, so he's got his, his hand withered, and he's not able to use it, which means that he isn't able to be employed very readily. You know, for us, this wouldn't necessarily be a big deal, because you could get a job you know, working with computers, or you could get a job using your, your brain if you have a withered hand, but this was an agrarian society. You're not going to get hired to work on somebody's farm if you have less than half the capacity of somebody who has two hands. So, this guy's life is rough. He's not able to work and provide for his family. He's probably pretty dependent on family and friends to take care of him. Things are pretty bad. And then, verse 2 And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So, they're the lurkers again. These religious Pharisees just watching, ready to accuse. Verse 3, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So, notice the contrast here. Jesus heals a guy on a Sabbath and changes his entire life. He uses the Sabbath to do what it was supposed to do, which is restore the broken. He restores the broken on the Sabbath. He does this good thing. The Pharisees are there saying what he just did is really bad. They had laws that you could do essential healing on the Sabbath. So somebody's bleeding out, you're allowed to apply a tourniquet on the Sabbath. You know, that was okay. But this obviously wasn't essential. This guy, he it could have waited till tomorrow. He didn't need to be healed today. Jesus could have done this. It wouldn't have made a difference. Why did he have to do this on the Sabbath? And so then what do the Pharisees do? They go and immediately have a meeting where they discuss how they're going to destroy and kill Jesus, which apparently is okay to do on the Sabbath. <laughs> so, so Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath, and that's really bad. The religious people, so warped by their rules and their religion, they say, well, we'll do what's good on the Sabbath. We'll plot the death of the Son of God. That's a a huge contrast. Look look at these two kinds of Sabbaths. Um, The Pharisees said the Sabbath was a day for being hungry and a day for being shriveled and withered and for plotting death. Jesus said it was a day for healing, for being full for rejuvenation, he's saying to the Pharisees, you guys can have your shriveled up, dead, ugly Sabbath. That's not what the purpose was. And he shows everybody, this is what the world's going to be like when I rule it. This is what the world will be like when we're resting in God. There won't be shriveled hands. There will be rejuvenation. There will be healing. There will be wholeness. And Jesus didn't, for a second, try to impress the religious nitpicks. He didn't say, oh, there's a bunch of guys here who might be offended if I heal this guy today, so I'll just wait till tomorrow. No, he said, I'm doing this today because i got to make a point. i got to teach something. i got to shock these people into seeing reality that the Sabbath was not designed to be a day that's all about keeping rules, but a day to be about Jesus and restoration. And to really keep this day looked more like peace and jo- joy and wholeness. It's what the Hebrews called shalom, which was just this interwovenness, this just general wellness. That's what that day was about and not at all about the kind of oppression that the Pharisees had turned it into. Now, this is really important for us. This is important for us as Christians to, to have a relationship with Jesus that's really and genuinely joy-giving and life-giving. Because people are looking for something that's completely different than the world around us. I mean, we live in a world that's driven and works real hard and is exhausted and worried and frazzled all the time. And if Christians in the middle of that world can be people of peace and joy and wholeness, then that stands out. In the 3rd century, there was a guy named St. Cyprian, and he wrote this to his friend named Donatus. He says, This seems like a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the whole lands, you know very well what I would see. Soldiers on the high road, pirates on the seas, and in the amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet, in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They've overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I'm one of them. This is really what's at stake here. Some of the evidence of the world that our faith is real and that Jesus is real is that we can be quiet and holy and joyful and rest when nobody else can. Listen to Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. It says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. We live in a world full of people who have no peace. But so often as Christians, we end up being just like them. We end up being just as driven and frazzled and worried and frayed and scheduled all the time. And I don't know that they look at us and see the same thing that Cyprian saw. I don't know that they see a people who are full of joy and hope and peace and who can really rest. And that's a problem. And this is why I think we still desperately need this discipline of Sabbath rest. In America, we work more hours than people in any other industrialized nation. We put in more hours, and when the economy is like it is, we're even more driven to put in hours because there, there aren't a lot of jobs. But, and, and we could very easily be eliminated and we could be replaced. You know, the cost of things has gotten crazy, where gas and groceries just seem like they're unbelievable. And it's so hard to feed a family, so hard to pay those bills. And so we work like crazy, put in long hours. We have to do all this to earn our keep. And then we go home, and at home we have the side business where we work, and then you add to that all of the busyness of family life and soccer games and the kids' schedules, and we end up being these very driven, work-all-the-time kind of people. Not only that, but we don't really leave work when we leave work. I mean, at work, we sit around all day, and we have our cell phone and computers beeping at us. And then we go home, we bring home our cell phones and computers, and they, they beep at us. So, so, so we spend the day at work sending emails, and then you come back home, and you say, oh, this is refreshing. I'm, I'm spending my evening sending emails. And so, so we just work all the time. We end up being hurried and burdened and stressed out workaholics. We're pretty bad at resting. And what can even happen, if you push this to its extreme, is that life can lose a lot of its beauty, and people can become to us commodities, You know, we just, everything's about work, everything's about advancing a career, getting ahead, so we don't enjoy people because we need to use them. And we try to always get things done, and people just seem like they get in the way. Relationships just seem like they're this necessary burden, so you go out for a date with your wife, and the whole time you're checking your texts, you're sending emails, you're not connecting with your wife, because that date isn't helping you advance your career. It's not helping you climb the ladder, so it seems like it's not important. That, that, that person just becomes a commodity that you trade to get ahead instead of there being real life and beauty in those relationships. And that's a dark place to be. And we can also be in this dark place where we get our identity from our work. I think it was like six years ago when I was taking some night classes and I was sitting next to a guy who had been laid off from Kodak after 30 years. And, and this guy said, I got laid off and I don't even know who I am anymore. He says, man, I was a Kodaker. That, that's what I did. I, my whole identity was I went to Kodak. I made film. I knew what my whole future was going to be like. It was all wrapped around Kodak. And so, so who he was was Joe works at Kodak. And then when that was gone, he had nothing. He said, I don't even know who I am. I, I have no sense of, of what I'm supposed to be doing in the world. I don't know where I even get my identity from anymore. And we can do that with our jobs. We can get so wrapped up in them that they become who we are and we, we lose our sense of significance when we lose that job. So the Sabbath day, a day of rest every week, is a day where we can short-circuit that hurry, where we can enjoy the beauty of creation and get restored. And when we rest and rest well, we're saying something about what we believe about the gospel. We're saying that it's not our work that sustains us. We're saying that it's not we who work to hold our world together. We're saying that we don't get our identity from our job. We don't get our significance from our job. We're saying that we have faith in one who even while we rest, provides for us. Who even while we rest, cares for us. We believe in the one whose death, burial, and resurrection gave us our worth, gave us our peace, gave us our identity, gave us our future. My job doesn't provide those things for me. And if we can't rest, we're exposing that we really believe that our provision and our significance come from our work. So we should be people who can unplug and take time off, a little bit of time every day, one day out of every seven, and do it in, in a way that preaches the gospel to our hearts and to people around us. If we can't do it, we start to believe the lie that we're a pretty big deal, you know, that, that this world really needs me to keep going. You know, maybe the little people can take a day off because they're not important, but me, I'm very important. And, and if I don't work all the time, everything falls apart. I don't know how God held his creation together before I showed up. Um, like I, I am a big deal. And so for me to not be in the game for a day, man, that's, that's, that's a bad day. And we get this subtle God complex. We also have jobs. A lot of our jobs just never feel like they're done. Like if you're in sales, there is always another potential client that you could contact there's always another mailer to send out, more advertising you could do. There, there's always another phone call to make. There's always something else to do on the computer, another email to return. And you never feel like, okay, my job's done. Even if I wanted to do something, there's nothing I could do right now. There's always something to do. If you are a mother, do you ever feel like your kids are, are done? <laughs> like, Oh, they've arrived. They're perfect. They're all set. Um, maybe in your house. But, but as parents, we just never feel like that work's done. If you own any kind of business... There's always something more to do. Mailers and bills, make calls, schedule appointments, do taxes. There's this mountain of work, and it can become this vortex that you just keep feeding and feeding and feeding, and you never rest. The truth is, all of us could always earn more money. There's always farther to get ahead against our debt. There's always more that we could save, more that we could give. And so there's this internal drive to just work, 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 and and feel like it's never done. I know in my job, this is tough. Um, and, and honestly, this Sabbath is a major area of weakness for me and sin for me. Uh, stuff that Debbie and I were even talking about this week, where we're saying, man, oh, th- this, this isn't a regular rhythm in our lives like it should be. In an area where I really need to repent. Like when I, I, I write sermons, you know, and that's 15 or 20 hours during the week, and it never feels done. Like It never feels like, okay, that sermon's perfect. It could always use one more revision. It could always use another illustration. I could always rearrange things a little bit more. And so I could just work all the time on it. I don't think I've ever come to a place where I've said, that sermon is very good. And you're all saying, yeah, we've never heard one of your sermons that we would say is very good. But it's just like there's this this internal drive. It just feels like it's never complete. It's never done. It's never enough. And then on top of that, Jesus' command is to make disciples of all nations. I never work six days and feel like, yeah, we nailed that. Um, we're, we're done. Everybody's a Christian now, and they're all following Jesus. I mean, even in our church, it, it, it never, there's this constant stack of work to be done. And if I start to convince myself that the kingdom of God depends on me, if I start to convince myself that I'm the most important thing in my church, I could just work and work and work and never feel like it's done. It's very hard for me on a Saturday night to print out the sermon and not feel like I'm printing out garbage. <laughs> like, it, it just never feels right. And we could all fall into that trap of always feeding the vortex and never resting. Not only that, we could try to take that day off, and we could try to do it in the strength of our own flesh, and it could end up being not rejuvenating at all. And I know there are times where I've tried to force myself into the Sabbath rhythm, and I didn't start with the Sabbath heart where I wasn't resting in Jesus and trusting in his finished work for me. I, I was still getting my identity from my work. I was still aiming for my sufficiency somewhere else. And so I'll spend that day where it just feels like work, trying so hard not to work. And then at the end of the day, I'm all knotted up and tense because of how far I just fell behind by taking that day off. So, so how do we do this? How do we, we Sabbath well? And I think it really does start with that Sabbath heart. To, to drive that gospel deep into us that says that Jesus has completed the, the ultimate work for us, that he's enough for us, he's sufficient for us, that all the insufficiencies in my job, all the holes that are still there, Jesus takes care of those. G- Jesus has died, and his death on the cross makes it so I can call that work complete. So we've got to start with that Sabbath heart, and then what do we do with a Sabbath day? And I think this is really dangerous uh, territory, because I don't want to fall into the trap of the Pharisees, where we start adding a bunch of rules to what the Sabbath is supposed to be, so that it ends up being this exhausting day of work for you. Uh, but I think there are some principles that we need, and, and one is, we should start our day off with worship. Now for a lot of you, I think Sunday ends up being your Sabbath, and this is, you know, for a long time, Christians called Sunday the Sabbath. I don't know that we can necessarily make the case from the Bible that Sunday is the New Testament Sabbath that has to be observed in the same way as the Old Testament Sabbath. But for 2,000 years, Sunday, on the Lord's Day, Christians would gather first thing in the morning, and they would worship. So, so we start our day on Sunday by worshiping, by, by praising our God, by allowing the gospel to be driven into our hearts to establish that Sabbath heart going into the day. So it can actually be a day of rest. So it can be a day of rejuvenation. Uh, so, so I would encourage you, if, if Sunday is your Sabbath, you're, you're in the right place for it to start by worshiping. Some of you, I know, though, have crazy schedules. I know we've got doctors and nurses who are just never going to have a normal schedule, where, you know, you're, this week you're working from three till midnight on Sunday, and then next week it changes. And there can be that craziness in our lives today, but I think whatever day it is that you choose to be that day of rest, starting with some worship, starting with some time in the Bible, you know, Maybe listening to a podcast, listening to some, some worship songs, going for a prayer walk first thing in the morning, something to center your heart on Jesus so that you can start with that internal peace that can overflow into the external peace of the rest of the day. So, so start with worship. I'd encourage you on that day off every week to sleep, to sleep in if you can. Um, I know for me, on my days off, which are not Sundays, these are work days for me, but um, on my days off, one of the biggest delights is to not have that alarm clock go off in the morning. And uh, as a father of four kids, that gives me ten extra minutes of sleep. It's, um, it's beautiful. <laughs> but uh, just, just to not be woken up by a buzzer one day a week is a beautiful thing. Uh, it's also good on the Sabbath to enjoy the work that God's done. Enjoy creation and enjoy the beauty that's out there. Um, allow yourself to be refreshed by going to Letchworth, going to Niagara Falls, walking in the woods, uh, enjoying the beauty that God's created out there so that it's not all about, your life isn't all about work. Uh, On the Sabbath, eat good food. You know, make this a day for celebrating. Have that beauty in your mouth. Um, Don't don't make that the day for, for fasting and afflicting yourself. Make that the day for celebrating what God has done. Uh, get together with friends and put the kids to bed and then linger for a couple hours over a long dinner where you laugh together, you share life together. Enjoy the beauty that God's put in creation. On your Sabbath day, do stuff that's not work for you. And, and this could be different for everybody. You know, in an agrarian society, you just tell everybody, hey, don't go out and plow today. And they say, okay, that sounds good. But a lot of us spend the week working with our minds, not with our hands. And so for me... Spending that day, that Sabbath day, doing a lot of work with my hands is very rejuvenating. There's was an old Jewish rabbi who said uh, those who work with their minds should Sabbath with their hands, and those who work with their hands should Sabbath with their minds. You know, so, so I love going outside and working on the yard on a Sabbath day because it's so different from what work normally is for me. It, it's work without deadlines. It's work where I'm kind of alone and, and enjoying some of God's creation and just doing some fun stuff with my hands. Now, if you own a landscaping business, working on your lawn on your day off is probably not a day off. So, so use that day to, to read the book and, and to, to do some Sabbath with your mind. Uh, whatever it is that's not work for you, find a day a week where you can do that. I know for Debbie, um, on, on the times where she takes Sabbath, which are not enough, uh, she loves to go and walk around the mall, which for me would be exhausting. Um, like, I, I just can't imagine a place that's more soul-sucking than the mall for me, where uh, she goes, and, and she comes back from walking around the mall for a few hours, and she's all perky and happy. I go to the mall, and I walk around, and I feel like I'm walking through a zombie apocalypse. Like, I'm going to get my brain and my soul sucked here somewhere. I'm just going to go sit in the food court and eat $10 French fries, because um, it's awful. I, I hate the mall, but she loves it, and there's something for her that's refreshing about going there and walking around. So whatever it is that's refreshing, do that on that day off. Also, unplug on the Sabbath. I mean, take your cell phone and turn it off or leave it in your car. And this is something I've gotten away from and I was just so convicted this week. I need to start doing this again where pull in the evening before my day off, I'm going to leave that phone in the car, let it stay out there. You say, now we know about that and we'll rob you. It's an Android, you don't want it. Um, it's <laughs> T-Mobile on top of that. And so, so I just need to leave it out there so I'm not hearing the beeps and the emails, and I'm not tempted to respond to that. I just want to unplug and not have that vehicle for work that's around me all the time. Um, Also on the Sabbath, make it a day where you can play. I mean, if you look at God's creation, animals play. You see whales jumping out of the water, and that's not efficient. There's no reason for them to do that. They just land right back in the water. They're just having a good time, and so we should it also enjoy creation. We should play, run with our kids, wrestle with our kids, go for a walk, and not because you're counting calories, because you're enjoying it, because you want to be out there. I'd also say this, schedule it weekly or it won't happen. Now, the, the rhythm in the Bible is six days of work and one day of rest. I don't think that the standards in the New Testament on this side of the cross are this is the day of the week that it has to be for everybody. And here's why I say that. Colossians 2, verse 16, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So it seems that on the New Testament side of the cross, because the Sabbath was a day that was all about Jesus and because he fulfilled the Sabbath, we no longer have the strict requirements of it has to be this day of the week. Uh, We we, we don't have all the requirements that there were in the Old Testament. We don't get put to death if if we violate it. But there is still a Sabbath principle that we should embody. Um, So I would say find a day of the week that can be your Sabbath. For many it'll be Sunday, but for some it won't. And so find that one day where every week your rhythm can be, I'm going to work six, and I'm going to take that one day off. Uh, And do that as a weekly rejuvenation for you, but then also as a weekly test of your heart. And do I trust Jesus enough to unplug for a day? Do I trust him enough that even if there's 13 voicemails on the phone, when I pick it up the day after my day off, Jesus is still going to be enough for me? He's still going to sustain me. Uh, The world will still turn if I don't answer the phone, if I don't reply to those emails. So do that. Do that regularly. I would encourage you to find some time every day that isn't work, even if it's just you know an hour, two hours at the end of the day when God's kind of turning off the lights and putting the sun down. Allow that to be a time of rest and rejuvenation. Uh, schedule some annually, where where you're going on if you can a couple straight weeks of vacation where you're you're out there just resting, just enjoying the way that God's blessed you. Enjoy His creation and get away from the work that you do. Now, all of this is meant to be a list of suggestions for how to embody these Sabbath principles. The last thing we want to do is start to give you a whole bunch of rules to make it feel like a burden. It should be a blessing. It should be a good thing, and ultimately, it should be a day that's about Jesus. It's about the rest we have in him. I think if we can learn to embody this again, we do start to look a lot different again than the world around us. Somehow, these people, they work real hard those six days of the week, but that not one day of the week, they rest. They know how to play well, they know how to recreate, they know how to enjoy the beauty of creation, and it doesn't seem like everything that they're doing on the Sabbath. They're always wondering, "Where am I going to get the money to pay for this?" We're, we're not tense all the time on that day. We're free on that day. And man, if we can be free from the values and principles and driving forces of the world around us, I think that's a powerful testimony to the work that Jesus has done in our hearts. Because naturally, we're we're frenzied and worried and driven. And that just shouldn't be who God's people are. We've been adopted as children of the king of the universe. He'll provide for us. He'll feed us. He he clothes the flowers in the field. He'll clothe us. He feeds the birds of the air. He'll feed us. And he'll do it in our sleep if he needs to. He'll do it on that day off. He'll provide for us. Watch him do it. Let's be people who work real hard six days, but then Sabbath and rest and worship that one day and show that Jesus has made that kind of difference in our hearts. Uh, for now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. You know, Coming to Jesus is not about the work that we do. It's not about uh, meeting a bunch of standards and following a bunch of rules and getting Jesus to, to finally be pleased with us and accept us. The message of Christianity is that the way we come to Jesus is by resting in him, by admitting the truth that we're sinful and we've broken his law, by admitting that we haven't kept the standards. We, we admit that all that's true, And then instead of trying to work and get on a treadmill and and try to to improve ourselves enough so that we're good people, we just say, I'm a lost cause, so I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to trust that the Son of God came and he did the work for me. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. And so if I'll just turn from my sin, if I'll just turn from my religion and my Jesus substitutes, if I'll just turn from my unbelief and trust in Jesus, he'll give me rest. He'll give me forgiveness. He'll give me life. He'll give me joy. So if you're here today and and you know that you're you're cut off from God by your sin, you feel the weight of your guilt, the weight of your conscience, and, and you're tempted to just start doing some stuff to make it go away, I promise you it'll never be enough. You'll work and work and work, but you'll never be able to get rid of that sinking and unclean feeling. So I've got real good news for you. God came to you. He came and he did the work. He died, he was buried, he rose again. And if you'll start from where you are recognizing your sin and then you'll trust in Jesus and his work on the cross to save you, he promises that he will. So turn from sin, turn from unbelief and turn to Jesus. Trust that he died the death that you should have died and that by doing that he wiped away your sin, wiped away your debt and credits you with his righteousness which makes you clean which makes you free which makes you adopted as a son or daughter of God you can cry out to him in whatever words you want and say God I know how sinful I am how broken I am but Jesus I trust in you I trust in your death burial and resurrection for me so I turn from everything else that was driving me and I turned to you Jesus please forgive me please cleanse me and Jesus please give me rest and the promise of the scripture is that if that's not just words that you pray, but if your heart is genuinely in faith turning to Jesus, Jesus says, of all those who come to me, I won't lose one. He'll receive you, he'll accept you, he'll cleanse you, he'll make you one with him. Now, for those of you who have put your trust in Christ, even if it was this morning <laughs> that you put your trust in Christ, one of the ways we celebrate the rest that we have in him is by taking this Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper is not a work that we do to, to try to get God to like us, but it's a reminder for our hearts of what he did for us, of the work that he did for us. When we eat the bread, we're reminding our hearts that Jesus came and had his body torn, just like ours should have been. His was torn for us and our behalf. He did that work for us so that we don't have to be torn, we don't have to be judged. When we drink the juice, we're reminding ourselves of his blood that was spilled for us, that he took the punishment that we deserve. And that we, in the simple act of trust in him, have our souls fed and replenished and nourished. Now this is a a solemn thing that that Christians should take. So if, if you're here and you say, I'm not a believer in Christ, I would encourage you not yet to take the Lord's Supper until you do come to that place where you trust in him. But if you believe in Christ, now would be a good time to confess sin, to, to confess the ways that you're just as driven and hurried and frenzied as everybody else and, and the ways that that betrays the, the lack of faith that we have. Confess that to God. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and then eat and drink in celebration of the work that Jesus did for you. So the way this will work is during these next couple songs, anytime you're welcome to come to the front or to the back or to the table up in the back of the balcony and take the bread and drink the cup and do it to, to, in one more way, preach the gospel to your heart that the work of Jesus is enough for you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that you are so good to us, that, that you made the Sabbath for man, that you blessed us with a day to be rejuvenated and a day to remind our hearts of your work on our behalf. Lord, we need that. We, we need those rhythms because we're so quick to forget. Lord, I thank you also for giving us this Lord's Supper as another way to, to tangibly preach the gospel to our hearts. Lord, we know that we're supposed to do this to show your death until you come. And so, Lord, as we remind ourselves of your death for us, I pray that that would nourish us and feed us and give us that deep sense of rest in you. Lord, we confess that we're, we're worried and hurried and frenzied and scheduled. And, Lord, we desperately need the rest that you offer. So, Lord, give us, give us Sabbath hearts. Give us hearts that can rejoice and rest and trust in you. And I pray that you'd be transforming us, even in our seats, even as as we worship, as we take this supper, uh, be changing us into people with a radical faith and joy who've overcome the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.